We've got another event other than my teaching right now. Mark Reisinger is going to come up, and Mark is going to give us his testimony. A lot of you know Mark and his wife Jackie and their three kids, uh, Benjamin and Allison and uh, Catherine, Kate. And uh, so you guys uh, uh, already know them, but now you're going to get to know them a little better. So, Mark, come on up. Well, good morning. As Dr. Dean mentioned, I am Mark Reisinger, and uh, my family and I have been attending West Houston Bible Church for about three years in September, I think. There's a camera on you. Oh, yeah? There you go. You need to be. Right here. Don't hide behind the pole. There you go. That was my strategy all along. <laughs> so um, I had the privilege of being born into and raised in a Christian home. And uh, my family also thought it was important for my brother and I to attend Christian school. And uh, they made a lot of sacrifices over the year to make that happen. Right there? All right. And, um, you know, I was thinking about that on Father's Day and all the things that they've done and went through to make that happen. And in a lot of ways, I wouldn't be here or who I am today if it weren't for that. Um, I was saved probably... between four and five years old. I was, I was fairly young, and as I'd mentioned, I'd always gone to church. And one night, I don't remember if it was a Wednesday or a Sunday night after church, gone home, gone to bed, and couldn't sleep. And so I got up and went and found my mom and said, I can't sleep, Mom. Well, what's wrong, son? Well, I think I need to be saved. So she's kind of like, um, okay, why? And I said, well, I'm, I don't know. I don't really want to go to hell. I think I want to go to heaven. That sounds pretty good. And um, so she started taking me through the Bible, and in school, each of the, the letters of the alphabet was associated with a Bible verse. So she started with A, and she said, well, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Where do you fit in there? It's like, well, I'm part of all, right? And I said, well, what now? Well, B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Okay, that sounds pretty good. What else? Well, that's it. Do you believe that? Well, Yeah. Okay, that seems pretty easy. And, you know, ever since that day, I've, I've never had a problem with that part of it. And growing up and, you know, you do all the things that every other normal kid does. But, um, you know, I just basically found a lot of comfort in that over the years. And um, later on, as I attended a different Christian school, I met my wife. She didn't want much to do with me in high school, but I kind of wore her down over time. And um, we eventually started dating and got married and moved on with our lives. And a little bit how I'm made to this church, uh, my wife was also born and raised in Houston, and she attended Baraka Church her whole life. And there was one time we were back in town visiting, and we went to Baraka with her parents, and there was this guy named Robbie Dean speaking. And we said, hey, this, this guy's all right. So we went home, and we started getting some of his lessons, um, I think, at Preston City at that time, and then later on West Houston, audio, recorded video. And I guess you might say we're using that as nutritional supplements uh, for the normal teaching we're getting in our, our Bible churches and Baptist churches and wherever we had to happen to be. And by that time, we were living in Arizona. And when we came, kind of, uh, came to the conclusion it was time to move back to Houston, we started thinking about the logistics. You know, where do we live? Where do we work? Where are we going to go to church? 
and it just seemed to make sense to uh, at least try out the place that we'd been listening to for three or four years. And we came here, and, you know, everyone was welcoming and kind. Um, Sandy and Judy in the nursery were very, very kind to our kids, and our kids seemed to want to come to church, and that helps when you have a young family. And so, you know, here we are. This is, you know, it's a special place. Um, it's not everywhere that you can get the level and, and depth of teaching and commitment that we have here. And it's a privilege to go here, and we look forward to helping out however we can. Thanks, Mark. Mark also has served as a deacon at one of the churches where where they attended before he came here. So both he and and James have prior experience on on deacon boards, so that also helps to uh, give them a little bit of experience that they can can bring to the table. Now I'll start. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity we have to fellowship together around your Word. That real fellowship begins at the cross, for where we, when we trust in Christ as Savior, we're adopted into your royal family. And we become a body, a family of believers. And the way in which we grow from spiritual infancy is through your word. Peter tells us that we are to desire the milk of the word like a newborn babe. We are to hunger for it, thirst for it. That is our source of spiritual nutrition. And it is through your word, in conjunction with God the Holy Spirit, that we are brought to spiritual maturity. And Father, as we study your word, we learn about you, we learn who you are, we learn your plan and purposes in history. And we recognize that one of the overarching themes of Scripture is to resolve the problem of sin, original angelic sin that had an impact on God's plan and creation of the human race, the sin of Adam, which brought spiritual death and corruption into this creation that can only be resolved through the death of a human being who would pay that penalty, but it had to be a perfect human being, and so it is the preparation period through the Old Testament, the focus on Messiah, uh, who would come and who would give his life like the sacrificial lamb uh, in the Old Testament, which depicts that, that substitutionary death. It's fulfillment in Christ and his life. And as we study through the Gospels, we're challenged with an understanding of what took place when the Lamb of God came into the world. And as we're told in John, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. So, Father, as we continue our study of your word, we know that there are many many ways in which this may apply to our lives, and we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear as we come to understand your thinking more clearly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, and this morning we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 14. And this is something of an interesting section uh, to focus upon and think in terms of the the way in which and why this is included in the Scripture for us. We're told that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. That's the meaning of doctrine. It's just instruction. It's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And it's always interesting when we get into some sections of the Word, we scratch our head and say, well, I don't really see how this applies. But there's always implications and application from every scripture. And God has revealed these things to us for a variety of reasons. I'm always impressed at how God's a multitasker. Long before there were computers and modern modern technology and other things, uh, God was multitasking and he accomplishes numerous things through... um, through one single uh, passage of Scripture. And so we're going to look at this, ch- this section of Scripture, which is really a flashback to something that has already happened, not probably too far in the past, uh, probably within the previous three or four months to this event, but it's a flashback to bring out something that I think is, is, is significant in the flow of Matthew's uh, Matthew's argument, and that deals with this theme of opposition to Christ and persecution. And so we see that evidenced in what happens to John the Baptist and what happened to almost all of the disciples, what happened to many of the early church believers, what's happening in many areas of the world today, and what I fear is going to begin to take place in, in this country Uh, before too much longer. And many of us never dreamed as we were younger that we would live in a time in which there may come open opposition and persecution even from the government to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be we need to be prepared for that. We need to be spiritually prepared for that. I don't think that we can necessarily always physically prepare for that in terms of logistics and other things because we don't know exactly where some of those attacks are going to originate or when they're going to originate, but we have to be prepared spiritually for those attacks. As we've looked at our study of the layout of Matthew Matthew begins with the presentation of the king at the beginning of his life, his birth, and then his presentation by John the Baptist. First time we're introduced to John the Baptist is in Matthew chapter 4. And in that time, John is coming, and he comes out of the wilderness, and he is proclaiming a message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is a cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was also the result of a miraculous birth, his uh, mother Elizabeth, his father Zechariah, who was a priest, and his mother was barren, one of those six barren women that are highlighted in the scripture for a specific purpose, because God is going to give her a somewhat miraculous conception, not miraculous in the way that cousin Mary is going to have a miraculous virgin conception, but because she's been barren and there. Uh, older, Zechariah and Elizabeth are older, God is the one who is going to make that possible. 
Angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple and tells him that he's going to have a son and that this son will fulfill prophecy. He will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And that tells us a couple of things. One thing it tells us is that Zechariah would understand Old Testament teaching about the Messiah. Now, I bring that out because many of you who were here during the conference, especially if you listened to Jim Myers' uh, talk on Friday night, uh, are, should be well informed that today there's a trend within evangelicalism to minimize the reality of Old Testament prophecy, that 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 what what you find in a lot of the intelligentsia in some of our conservative evangelical seminaries. No, it's not the liberals. These are the conservatives. Is that they minimize this. In fact, uh, of, of most of the men who are on the faculty at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I'm not picking on Dallas, I just happen to know that Dallas culture a little better than I do other seminaries, uh, many of those men would say that, and this was true even in my day, although I was learning so many other things, I wasn't really tuned into this particular problem, that the only real prophecy, if we have one, that's messianic in the Old Testament is Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. They minimize Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, Psalm 2, many other passages, Micah 5.2. These these passages really had a historical fulfillment. They They weren't messianic in their original intent. But but when you look at the scripture, as Jim pointed out on Friday night, you have constant references to the fact, and we even saw this in the passage I read in, in, uh, in, in the parallel in Mark 6, that when the people saw what Jesus did, they heard his words and they saw his works, they saw his miracles, they said, some said he was Elijah, others said he was a prophet, and others were saying, could this be the prophet? which means they clearly understand there was messianic content in the Old Testament. Zechariah understood that, so when Gabriel's telling him that that, um, uh, he's going to give birth to a son and he will be the forerunner of the Messiah, he knew exactly what that meant. And so that's our first introduction to John the Baptist, and then we see him come on the scene later on as as a somewhat odd uh, prophet because he is... He spent most of his time out camping in the in the boonies, out in the desert of Judea, and having a rather unusual diet of of um, locusts and honey, and that he dresses in this camel hair robe. So he he looks and dresses in a way that's going to attract attention. So he's got a little bit of a PR approach that it's a little different from what we might expect today. And he comes out in the desert, and he begins to proclaim this message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that, that's the thrust of his message. But in the process, John is doing some, saying some other things. He's talking about the need to repent, why do you, they should repent. And so he is, as was the role of a prophet from the time of Moses on, one of the roles of the prophet was to sit in judgment on the government, because and the principle here is the word of God is always the ultimate authority when it comes to civil government. That civil government was always under the authority of the word of God, and we see this, for example, in Samuel, as we'll be studying on Tuesday nights. That when uh, Samuel comes on the scene, 
He is the one who anoints the king. The king is under the authority of God. The king is not uh, autonomous. He doesn't rule on his own whim, on his own basis, but, but he rules under the authority of God and under the law of God. And so throughout the Old Testament period, you see prophet after prophet coming on the scene, and they are announcing a judgment on the people because they're not obedient to the law. The, 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 the role of a prophet was a lot like a, a prosecuting attorney representing the throne of God uh, and, and, um, and accusing the people and bringing an indictment against the people for their disobedience to, to the law of God. And so John the Baptist functioned that way. When he tells them to repent, even though we are not told in the Scripture what what the details of his message were, he didn't just say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't just say that over and over again. He talks about why they need to repent, what the issues are, what repentance meant. It meant a change of mind and a change in their direction, a change in the way they interpreted the law and how they applied the law of Moses in their lives and the need to turn back to God, either to trust in God as the one who will provide them with salvation, trust in the messianic promise uh, from the Old Testament, and he would have developed that. But he also critiqued the government at the time. We learned that from this passage because, as as we will see, when uh, Herod is... Uh, uh, the reason, One of the reasons Herod is willing to execute John the Baptist is that we're told down in verse 4, because John had said to him, and the uh, the verb form there is uh, in the imperfect tense, which doesn't mean he did it once. He did it over and over and over again. And some of the uh, uh, more modern translations will, will translate that for because John had continually said to the, him. And he didn't say that to him one-on-one. He said that in his messages as he's talking to the people. And that's something that would have uh, riled up the folks a little bit, but it also uh, was a challenge to the morality and the ethics of, of of the kingdom and of the rule of Herod Agrippa. This is uh, uh, Herod Agrippa that is uh, on the uh, ruling over Galilee and Perea at this particular time, and we'll get into that uh, that in just a minute. So you have initially this offer of the king and the kingdom, but that came with a critique, a political critique of of the government. And this then is the same message of Jesus. When he came on the scene, John the Baptist baptized him, which was the uh, public presentation of the king, and his message was the same, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this led eventually, in the initial stages, very popular and large crowds came out to hear Jesus. And then uh, there was a, a hint of opposition. We read that back in in Matthew, Matthew chapters uh, 7 and 8, and in there where there were multiple uh, or continuous little bits and pieces indicating opposition. And this eventually culminates in the rejection of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah by the Pharisees in, in chapter 12. And so that's the centerpiece where everything shifts and pivots. And then the last part is dealing with, from chapter 13 on, Jesus' training of the 12. Well, part of this last section focuses on the increasing opposition 
the opposition to his uh, claim of being the Messiah and to the to his offer. And so this is the basic structure that we have been looking at. Now, in Matthew 14, 1, uh, Matthew tells us when this event takes place. At the end of chapter uh, chapter 13, we saw the rejection of Jesus at his hometown in Nazareth. Now we're going to see the rejection of the forerunner and what happened to him and that, that this, this cost him his life, as it will cost our Lord his life uh, at the crucifixion. So there's a subtext running through this that foreshadows that what happens to John the forerunner will happen to the Messiah as well. So we're introduced to this guy, uh, Herod the Tetrarch. We read in verse 1, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Now you look at that, and here he's Herod the Tetrarch. Now there's something about studying the New Testament that really confuses people, and that's whenever we start talking about Herod. And I remember when I was uh, when I was probably eight or nine years old, my dad was trying to teach me how to fish using uh, casting instead of just using a bamboo pole and just uh, fishing off the pier, but casting a line out there. And he probably made a mistake because the only the only reel that he had was a Mitchell open face reel, which. Uh, is is a little more advanced than your typical little Zebco closed closed reel. And I remember the first time I, I tried casting with that, it just produced this huge jumble of fishing line. You guys know what I'm talking about. And then what do you have to do? You have to sit down and you have to apply a little patience, which never run ran very strong in the genetic makeup of my family. And you have to undo and you have to follow all those little, the lines and pull it out and take a lot of time to undo that knot. Well, that's kind of what the Herodian family is like. It's really confusing because you don't have any color codes. And you have uh, the progenitor of the line is Herod. And here we have a, a, a rather simplified chart, and simplified because we don't have all his wives in there. And he had ten wives. After he got rid of his first wife, Doris, the other nine were uh, simultaneous. He's the only known figure in the ancient world that had uh, multiple wives at that time in the first century, uh, the only one that we know of. And he had uh, all of these different... These are named sons. There were uh, other uh, daughters and sons whose names were not preserved down through history. But from these nine different wives, he had a number of different sons. Now, his name was Herod. People then didn't call him Herod the Great. They wouldn't walk in and say, well, okay, fill out this form, first name Herod, last name the Great. Now, uh, he was just Herod and it wasn't until later on that people applied uh, the great to that because it helps distinguish him from his sons. He had at least two sons who were called Herod. Now, if you look at this chart, you'll see that the first son listed here is actually the son that we're talking about, is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the Herod that we read about throughout most of the Gospels. It's Herod the Great, who's the Herod at the time of the birth of Jesus, but he dies shortly thereafter. And then uh, there's a transition that takes place because of his will, 
and he leaves his his kingdom uh, to his sons, and it's split up among his sons, and so they're referred to as tetrarchs. Now, the etymology of that word tetrarch means uh, a ruler of a fourth, and so that's the literal meaning, but by this time it had just come to be a title for someone who ruled part of a kingdom. Okay, so we got to get past this odd terminology of a tetrarch. What in the world is a tetrarch? I've heard of a king, I've heard of a president, I've heard of a dictator, but I've never heard of a tetrarch before. And then we also have an ethnarch in there. That comes later, but we won't confuse you too much with that term right now. So we have Herod Antipas, and he's the tetrarch or the ruler of Galilee from 4 B.C. to 39. So, so he gets part of the kingdom. Now, another son, Archelaus, uh, becomes uh, the ethnarch, there's that term, ruler of a people from ethnos, meaning a people or a nation, the ruler of a people. And he's actually given the title king like his father Herod had. And he's the ethnarch or the ruler of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, or excuse me, I misspoke just then. He's not given the title king. He's given the, he, he's also given the title Herod. But his name's also Herod. Are you confused now? So what's the, part of the confusion is Herod has two sons that he names after himself. Now, some scholars have said, well, that wouldn't make sense. That'd be like somebody who would, would, would have, uh, uh, two sons and they would name them the same, same name. Yeah, what's his name? Yeah, I knew y'all would know that. George Foreman does the same thing, yeah. He just named all of his sons after himself. So that's what Herod did. He liked his name, and he just gave. So that's a problem because you got two sons who are called Herod. That's their birth name, uh, Herod Archelaus and Herod Philip. But in the Bible, Herod Philip is mostly referred to as Philip. And Josephus calls him Herod. And so there are liberals who say, well, Josephus, when he talks about this, he's got a different person than Philip, and, and it's really his name was Herod Philip. And then you have Herod Antipas, who isn't born. I mean, he's known as Antipas until Archelaus is kicked out by the Romans because he was such a horrible ruler. He was probably the, he was clearly the worst of the bunch and the worst of his sons, and he just angered the Jews so much that they finally sent a delegation to to uh, Caesar, to Tiberius, to kick him out because he was horrible and he got kicked out and exiled to Vienne, which is south of Lyon in France for the rest of his life. And um, once that happened, then his title of Herod became transferred to Antipas. And at that point, Antipas assumes the title of Herod. Herod's not his name. Herod's the name of his two brothers. You all confused yet? You should be. I mean, scholars have spent years trying to unravel this knot. It's, it's, it is very confusing. And so, but that's, that's, that's basically it. And Herod the Great was a, a, a tremendous, he was probably one of the most significant architects and builders. And those of you who've gone to Israel, we've seen a number of different things that that he built and that have survived down through, uh, through, through the centuries. And, but he also had a sin nature that ran toward paranoia and suspicion. And he was always afraid that his wives or his sons were out to do him in. And there was some evidence of that. So he had uh, his sons, uh, Aristobulus 
and uh, Alexander and Antipater, three of his sons, executed. So it wasn't a really good thing to be part of his family. In fact, uh, one of the Caesars, I can't remember which one, said that it would be better, you would be better treated if you were a pig in Judea than if you were a son of Herod. And pigs were unclean animals. They weren't treated real well. So uh, it, this was not a great thing to be a, a son of Herod the Great. Well, what we have in this story, to just make it somewhat simple, is that that Philip, who is the, gets this kingdom here that's in a sort of a tan or light brown color, he's the, the ruler of this territory, and he marries uh, Herodias. And Herodias is... Uh, I'm not even going to try to get into it. She's she's a, a relative, but that's what you get in the family is there's a lot of marriage of first cousins. So I think that probably exacerbated the whole paranoia gene in the in the sin nature. Uh, but he marries Herodias, uh, and then she divorces him. Now, according to Roman law, that was legitimate, but according to Jewish law, that was not legitimate. And she divorced him because uh, Antipas had come up to visit, and, and they they locked eyes one day, and that was it, and they decided they were in lust with each other forever and ever, and they came up with this deal that, that if she divorced, uh, uh, she, if she divorced uh, Philip, that he would divorce his wife, and then they could get married. The trouble was that, that Antipas's wife was the daughter of Aretas IV, who's the king down in Petra. He's, he's Arab. He's down in Petra. Those of you who've been to Israel with me or Jordan this last year, we went over to Petra. And that really angered her father. He had married her so there would be peace between, between him because he rules the, this kind of blue area here, Galilee and Perea, and Perea stretches down uh, almost down to this area in the south, which is Nabatea, and, and Petra would be just off of the map to the south. So there's going to be a war that occurs in 35. This is like two years after the cross. There's going to be a war that occurs where Aretas is going to just wipe out um, Antipas's army. And the reason given by Josephus for that is because of going back to this event where uh, Antipas had divorced divorced his wife, and that broke the treaty and really angered Aretas. So, so there's a lot of things going on here, but because of the way Josephus tells the story, this causes some conflict in dates because people want to think that, well, this event with John the Baptist didn't occur before the cross, but in 35. But these events took place, and it took years for things to fester, before these these battles took place, they weren't something that happened just uh, just immediately. So this is the background for this particular episode. So let me look at this again, just work it through verse by verse. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard this report about Jesus and said to his servants, "This is John the Baptist." So he's thinking that Jesus is the reincarnation, so to speak, of John the Baptist, which is really strange because there's some thought that Herod held to the the beliefs of the Sadducees, and the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. 
So he's, it shows something about how the unbeliever's conscience works, that when he's done something that violates his conscience, even though he tries to stuff that, this happens with believers too, stuff that down into a compartment in the basement of his soul, things are going to happen that God brings along that are going to bring those things back to mind. And the result is he's got this overwhelming guilt complex, and when you've got a guilt complex combined with a sin nature trend towards paranoia, it's just a nasty little combination that can produce a lot of of sorrow in in the soul. But he's got no way to deal with the sin in his life and the failures because he's reject he's he's an unbeliever he's rejected the truth of God's word as it has been revealed up to that particular point so this is evidence that he, of his of his guilt not only real guilt but the the guilt feelings that generate because because of his sin so he says that he thinks Jesus is John the Baptist that he's been resurrected from the dead and these powers are at work in him so it's very clear again that the miracles that Jesus is performing are not doubted. They're not questioned. Now, you and I, when we turn on a number of different television shows and we see someone like Benny Hinn bringing people down uh, down to the front and go along, the lines them all up and goes around and pops them on the head and they pass out and all of these different things, that that is a, uh, that we don't, oh, this is so phony. And there's a lot of things written about the phoniness of these things, and, ha- and there have even been exposés done on shows like 60 Minutes and some of these prime time shows that we have. Uh, they're, they're phony. But nobody at the time of Jesus is questioning his miracles because of the nature of the miracles and the numerous eyewitnesses. So he's not questioning that. Uh, but his guilt is such that it is distorting how he's interpreting the events. And he says, this is just... It's got to be John the Baptist coming back to haunt me. And so, and then we have a flashback. So one and two are what John, uh, what Matthew's telling us about. And, and then he goes into this flashback from verses three down through twelve. And the reason for that is he's pointing out another example of opposition and persecution to the gospel. The, and this point to the message of Jesus. So he says, he explains it, verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And what that's basically saying is because of what has happened with Herodias, that Herodias was his his brother's uh, wife, and that made this unlawful. It violated the Mosaic Law, which prohibited the marriage uh, to a brother's wife unless that marriage between brother and wife had not produced any children. And then the exception was that if the brother died childless, then the brother could take his wife in what was called a leveret marriage and produce children with his brother's wife that would be raised up as the heirs of his brother in order to continue that family name and to pass on the property and the inheritance that was to stay within the family, within the clans, as, as determined uh, by the real estate divisions that are uh, that are explained in in the book of Joshua. So, um, Philip, 
There's debate about this, whether Salome, the daughter, is, is Philip's or belongs to an even prior marriage by Herodias. And I think that, that she was probably had the, had the child by a prior marriage. Then she, uh, she married uh, Philip, and Salome was Philip's uh, stepdaughter. And then they were divorced. So Salome is not the child of Philip, but still, nevertheless, this would, because Philip is still alive, this would be a violation of the Mosaic law. And so the, the Pharisees and the Orthodox were clearly opposed to what had taken place. And this just led to further unrest within the kingdom because here they, they already have this Herodian ruler, the son of Herod, and they didn't really like Herod that much because he wasn't, he was sort of a half-breed. He was Edomian, which is a descendant of Edom, and he claimed some Jewish blood in his line, but that really wasn't respected very much. And so there was a lot of opposition to Herod the Great as well as to uh, Herod Antipas. And then we're told that he has this, that the reason for this antagonism toward John is because John had continually said to him, it is not lawful for you to, uh, for you to have him. Uh, it says it's not lawful for you to have her and to be married to her. So he's challenging the ethical foundation of the kingdom. Now, as I've stated earlier, this is an imperfect tense verb here that John had continuously, continuously done this. Now, this is, as I pointed out earlier, a standard operating procedure for the prophets. The Word of God stands over government. We have a situation today that is uh, not unlike this. We're going to find out this particular week about a Supreme Court decision. Uh, related to the laws, the the defense of marriage laws in various states in in the United States. And many people believe that this particular decision uh, is going to go against the traditional, historical, biblical view of marriage as being between one man and one woman. And this is going to have devastating effects culturally, because no nation has ever redefined marriage. It has been the same definition for generations, and to redefine marriage is going to have a host of unforeseen circumstances, unintended consequences, because of how this is going to affect a lot of different things. And where do you stop when you once you start changing this definition? It's never happened before, even in the most perverse homosexual favoring cultures like ancient Greece and ancient Rome, they never validated uh, homosexual unions as marriage, and they ne- never even projected this upon the, uh, the pantheons, upon their gods and goddesses. Their gods and goddesses were incredibly immoral, but they weren't homosexual. Isn't that interesting? And so this decision by the Supreme Court has already been uh, highlighted. You've heard a lot of people talk about it, focus on the families. Uh, Founder James Dobson has come out and said this is going to be the basis for uh, civil disobedience among all pastors and all Christians and refuse to, to validate this. And then today a group has taken out a full-page ad in the Washington Post 
that's an open letter to the Supreme Court justices of the United States. And it says, we ask you not to force us to choose between the state and the laws of God. We, the undersigned, have joined together to present our unified message and plead to the justices of the United States Supreme Court regarding the matter of marriages, where Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox Christian pastors, clergy, lay leaders, and Jewish leaders. This is the first time I've seen anybody bring that out. Orthodox Jewish leaders are as much opposed to this as Christians are. Everybody wants to blame Christians for, for this. But Muslim clergy are against this as well. Somebody pointed out this last week that uh, possibly one reason you're not hearing anything from Muslims about this is because if the definition of marriage changes um, to validate same-sex marriage, then they think they can use that to change the definition to allow for polygamy. Now, Mormons haven't gone there, which is what I would suspect. Mormons are very much opposed to same-sex marriage as well. So you have a, it's not just Christians that are opposed to this. And so they go on and they say, we affirm that any judicial opinion which purports to redefine marriage will constitute an unjust law as Martin Luther King Jr. described such laws in his letter from the Birmingham jail. That's an interesting appeal because that's going to bring an appeal to the black community, the black Christian community uh, on board with this as, as well. And so basically what this says, as you skip down, it says, On this choice we must pledge obedience to our Creator. While there are many things we can endure, any attempt to redefine marriage is a line we cannot and will not cross. The complete marriage pledge can be read, and then they give their website on uh, www.defendmarriage.org and gives a more uh, detailed defense of marriage on that website. This is a huge culture clash that is coming right now because once you elevate and legitimize same-sex marriage, then you're, as the inherent right of homosexuals, then you're going to come into a rights clash with the First Amendment. Do we have the right to freedom of speech, the right to assemble, the right to freely teach the Word of God, even when it conflicts with the what they will say are the rights of homosexuals to marry. And that is going to go, I think, in a negative direction. That's what's happened in Canada and one of the problems in Canada. So we're headed to a a huge conflict that could, if they decide uh, against the state laws, uh, I, I predict that that will eventually lead to churches that will lose their tax-exempt status. That's already been stated by, I believe it is uh, uh, Obama's, uh, I forget the exact title, his main attorney. Uh, It's not the uh, uh, attorney general, but it's it's somebody just under the attorney general has already been stated that this this will render null and void the tax-exempt status of almost every religious institution in the country. So this is a full-bore frontal assault against Christianity, which means that a week from now, because this decision is supposed to be announced, I believe, in the next week, uh, a week from now, this may create a totally new environment within the United States that has never existed. And our beliefs will basically be unconstitutional and illegal if they make that make that decision and the implications of that are horrendous 
And this is the same kind of thing that happened with John the Baptist. He's preaching the truth and proclaiming a biblical uh, truth on uh, about Herod and his marriage. And when uh, the word of God clashes with secular authorities, the result is opposition and persecution that's going to increase. And this is what happens. And so Herod has his birthday party in verse 6. And the daughter of Herodias, Salome, then there's like four different Salomes in the family. So that's another really difficult thread to start dealing with. So I'm not going to confuse you on that. Uh, it's the stepdaughter, uh, probably, actually, I believe the stepdaughter of even Philip, but she, uh, she is Herodias' daughter. She's about 12 years old in the, um, in Mark 6.22, we read, when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod, and there's nothing lewd about this. Some people try to put sexual overtones on this, but that's not the case. There have been numerous studies on this, even in the ancient world, that this was not something that was unusual, and it was not something that had sexual overtones. Uh, she came in and she danced. She pleased Herod and those who sat with him. And the king said to the girl, and the word there for girl is karasion in the, in the Greek, and it refers to a young girl of marriageable age, probably between the age of 12 and 14. And so she is providing uh, acceptable, normal entertainment uh, for, for the king and for those with him. And, and he is so pleased that he makes this, uh, this rash vow. And so in verse uh, 7 we read, he promised with, with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And so she having been prompted by her mother. So she goes to her mother. She's young. She doesn't know quite what to ask for. So she goes and she asks her mother. And her mother is just so bitter towards John the Baptist. And this is what happens, folks, when you're a believer standing for the truth, even if you don't articulate it, because people know what you believe, they react in anger, in bitterness, in hatred, because they just don't want anyone standing out there who might think that what they're doing is morally wrong. And we see this especially with certain categories of sin. And homosexuality is one of them. The gay rights movement is not just trying to get uh, to be treated uh, equally under the law. They want everyone to validate what they're doing. They want everyone to say, it's okay. That's what it's about. And you may hear some gay rights leaders say, we're not out there to try to infringe upon the church. Do not believe that. Uh, there have been numerous other movements, that have, uh, social movements, to change things in this country, the most obvious one of which I think that for comparison, whatever you think is smoking, it's a, the comparison is the anti-smoking movement. Back in the early 70s, all they wanted was to have a non-smoking section in a restaurant. But if you really read their literature, they want to get rid of smoking altogether. But they understand that you do this incrementally and you don't really talk about what your end game is. You just talk about what you want to do right now. No, no, no. We don't want to outlaw smoking in people's homes, and we don't want to outlaw smoking in people's cars, and we don't want outlaw smoking in, in, in neighborhoods. We just want to have a non-smoking section of the restaurant. And that's, that's the same kind of pattern. They all read out of the same playbook, and all these social movements all follow that same mentality. Let's just 
take a little bit. Once we get that, then we'll go to the next step. So ultimately, it is to remove from society anyone who is going to say anything negative about homosexuality. This is what's happened in England, what's happened in Canada, and any kind of negative statement about homosexuality is considered hate speech and is punishable by fine and jail time. And that has taken place to clergy in both England and in Canada. And that's exactly where this uh, this country is headed if this change takes place. That's that's the direction. Andy Woods, who's got a legal background, was a lawyer before he went to seminaries, pastor at Sugarland Bible Church, has a blog called The Word on Politics. And he's had a five-point series so far on this topic, which you ought to look up and, and read. And he has quoted from a, a Canadian a Christian who was raised in a homosexual same-sex marriage household in Canada, and it's her testimony given before the United States Congress on what has happened. And she said, freedom of speech is a joke in Canada now because if you say anything negative about homosexuality, you're going to be fined and go to jail. No Freedom of speech no longer exists. That's where things are headed. And so this is what happens with... with uh, Antipas and with Herodias is just knowing that John the Baptist is out there and that he believes and says things about their marriage that that is critical. They want his head. She specifically wanted his head, and so that's what she requested in verse 8. So give, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the result was the king was sorry. He, he wanted John off the pit because John's criticizing his rule, but he also, I think, recognized that John's probably a messenger from God, and I shouldn't mess with that. So he had not done anything more than put him in prison. And so that's why it says he was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the O's and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. And so he sent his hit team out to uh, where he had John imprisoned and had him beheaded and then brought his head on a platter to give to the girl and to her mother. Just a grisly, grisly scene. And then we're told his disciples came and took away the body, buried it, and went and told Jesus. Now what we see is that persecution and opposition is something that is to be expected by believers. We've lived in a historical bubble in the United States for the last 400 years where persecution of Christians has not taken place. But opposition... And subtle persecution has been increasing, especially in the workplace, so that there are people who are so intimidated by their employers and by federal, what they think are federal laws, they don't even ever witness or talk or mention God or anything in the workplace. They also have to enforce a number of different um, uh, policies uh, related to employers and equal rights and these things that run counter to the scripture, but they sort of put, take their, they're forced subtly to take the scripture, put it in a compartment in their mind so that they can maintain their job and not really make an issue out of some, some of these human resource uh, policies that have been mandated. And it's a process of gradualism so that it breaks down our views on gender distinctions that are emphasized in, in the Scripture. So we're already experiencing this in a light way, but we will experience more. 
in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 11, in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really interesting to travel with a geologist. When we were in the Grand Canyon, I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount to Steve Austin, and he says, you mean the Sermon on the Lava Flow? <laughs> Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for obnoxious' sake. Some Christians are obnoxious. They don't deal with this opposition in grace. We have to make sure we're dealing with these issues graciously, kindly, and not in uh, a negative, judgmental sense. It will be taken that way. But we have to make sure that we're dealing with this from a uh, gracious sense, for righteousness' sake. Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And we have to relax about that. I know that I do, and I know many of you do. You read these things in the paper, your blood pressure goes up, and you want to go pound your fist against the wall. We need to, that's the test. We need to learn to relax and put it in the hands of the Lord and recognize that Jesus Christ controls history. And that's verse 12. We need to rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then we have 2 Timothy 3.12, where Paul says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Living godly means to live to have spiritual maturity. If you want to be spiritually mature, you want to be a disciple, Paul says, more than likely you will be persecuted. And that's, that's how it works. Um, I wanted to take some time. We don't have time, but to look at the previous verses. Paul talks about persecution. Go read those verses from about verse 10 on in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And then Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. As he is facing this thorn in the flesh, which I believe was a demon that was sent to, sent by Satan to persecute him, that the issue is this demon is stirring up opposition and persecution. That's what verse 10 indicates. It's not some specific illness or infirmity, which is what a lot of people suggest. It's a messenger of Satan, an angel, okay, an angelos, a messenger of Satan. And what that uh, source of temptation is is seen in verse 10. So Paul says the solution to this is what God tells him. My grace is sufficient for you. No matter what happens, even if you end up in prison, that just means you're going to have better health care. Okay, look on the bright side. Eventually we may all be there. It's going to, we're going to have better, you know, we're going to have a congregation. We can have Bible studies. We can have a ministry. We don't have to worry about work and all those other things. We have a lot of time for Bible study, and we can uh, witness to we can develop our own prison ministry. So try to look on the bright side. My grace is sufficient for you, God says, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I most gladly will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure. See, a lot of us just have trouble with that. We're, we get irritated because the things go wrong. But we're to take pleasure in that. I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches. I, I need to be happy that my country's going downhill and that we're going to face persecution and opposition and negative court judgments. That doesn't mean we shouldn't fight it legally. But Paul says, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs in persecutions. Many times he was persecuted and he was stoned in, at one time. 
and he was beaten, and he was thrown in jail. I take pleasure in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I'm wrong, I mean, when I'm weak, then I am strong. See, this is what, it's going to give an opportunity for growth in ways that, that we never imagined. And we need to have the right mental attitude about that, to rejoice, because in that, God is going to demonstrate that his grace is sufficient even when things are going south, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study study your word, to be reminded that just as John the Baptist, just as our Lord Jesus Christ, just as the Apostle Paul and Peter, James, so many others, suffered the loss of everything they had, including their physical life, for the sake of the gospel, we too may have that privilege. Often we look at it from human viewpoint and think this is something horrible, something negative, but the divine viewpoint is that this is something to rejoice over, for it gives us that opportunity to grow spiritually, to realize your grace in our lives, and to be a, a greater testimony to all of those around us. Father, we recognize that your word teaches us that there's this conflict, this war that goes on around us, but that that war ultimately is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities and powers of the air, that there's a spiritual dimension to this. But the ultimate solution has to do with the cross, for it's at the cross that sin, the sin penalty was paid for. It's at the cross that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And Father, we know that there are many who are uncertain of their salvation or unsure of their eternal destiny. And this is our opportunity to make sure that that is sure and certain in their life. Scripture says very clearly that the only solution is trust in you, specifically trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, that he paid that penalty, and that we today are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that we are to trust in him as our uh, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We trust in him as the one who delivers us from the sin penalty and gives us new life that we may live forever with you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.